Welcome to Pick Me Up Pod. This is the podcast where we are destigmatizing everything and anything menstrual health, from your period to birth control to pregnancy and abortions. I'm your host, Sophie, and I have a period, and I want to talk about it. What's up, guys? It's Sophie. Welcome back to the 13th episode of Mom, Come Pick Me Up. I can't believe it's been a couple of months since I've started doing this, and I can say I feel a lot more comfortable in front of a mic now, so that's a big plus. Um, I'm very excited to be coming at you guys with a brand new gorgeous microphone with a stand. I know you guys aren't seeing this episode, but hopefully the sound is going to be a lot better for you. Um, but I have two tidbits I want to share this week. Um, not going to be a very long episode. I don't have a guest this week. Um, I have been moving. It's been an incredibly long week uh, trying to get situated in my apartment um, kind of moving, um, into a new, can I say this already? Oh, fuck it. Um, moving into a new job, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, um, which I'm super stoked about. Um, but that's just some personal news. Um, I have a bit of personal news I want to share on my personal menstrual journey, um, as well as I want to do a little bit of a dive into a Andrew Huberman podcast episode he did um, with actually a hormonal doctor, um, specifically in, um, obviously, women's menstrual health. Um, let me just go ahead and actually pull this up. So this was a, oh my gosh, it was a two and a half hour-long episode with Dr. Sarah Gottfried, who is absolutely incredible. Um, I thought I knew at least a decent amount about hormonal health, um, but I learned so many new things about oral contraceptives and the effect, the long-term effects that they can have on the body. Um, I learned new things about the IUD, uh, why she recommends them, actually. Um, so that gave me a little bit of a, more of a positive um take, I guess, on the IUD. Um, if you guys have been listening in, um, IUDs scare me personally. Um, but I have a lot of friends who absolutely love them and they work absolutely wonderfully for. Um, again, these are all just my personal experiences that I'm, I'm sharing with you guys. Um, whatever form of birth control works for you, I'm a fan. Um, but just digging into the first topic I want to talk about here, being... Um, I finally am in this phase now of my life. Thankfully, um, the last three months were pretty difficult, if I'm being pretty honest. Um, but I'm finally a little bit more settled in all things career and life. And I'm like, okay, like I'm on this healthcare, healthcare plan for another six weeks. Um, I'm going to get out all my doctor's appointments. Um, I haven't been to the OBGYN in a year. So like, let's do it. It's time to go. I go to a new doctor and I already get a good impression at um, the reception. Everyone's very nice, like very clean office in the Upper East Side. Um, already good impression. I go in, see the doctor. I'm like, you know, telling her about some of the problems I've been having that I was diagnosed with um, a fibroid um, about six months ago. And she's like, OK, all right, like we'll just do another sonogram, make sure like just see what's up. So we have it on record here. Um, and then I was like, uh, give me like the full 
STI panel. Just give me like, I want the works. Okay. Like go in, test me for everything. So like, I don't have to come in and do it again. So the nurse goes ahead and gives me the sonogram. And the thing about some nurses is that they don't necessarily have the best bedside manner. Immediately as her wand or I don't even, the sonogram tool is inside of me. She's like, oh my God, like this is, this is a fibroid. I'm like, yes, I know. Like, I already know it's there. And she was like, um, this is like way too big for your age. Like you're only 28. Like you definitely shouldn't be having a fibroid of this size. And I'm like immediately getting like very anxious. Um, cause I, when I had gone to a different OBGYN, she was like, yeah, like it's not a big deal. 80% of women get them. I'm like, okay. Um, so then, um, she sends me back to the waiting room and I have to wait another little bit for the doctor to come. And, I'm very finicky when it comes to health things. Like I will pass out if I see blood. Like it's just, it's not my avenue. Anyway, so I'm like starting to get lightheaded in this doctor's office. Um, Finally, I go back in and um, the doctor does all my blood work, which I was very brave to do. I was like blasting music the whole time, almost passed out. But the doctor was basically talking to me about this fibroid. And um, basically saying that at the size, she would probably recommend I get it taken out so it could heal properly should I have decide to have children in my 30s. And I'm like, okay, like, I feel like it's not that big. I feel like it would be like a minimally, minimally invasive surgery. And um, she basically, I have yet to go do this because they haven't called me back yet, but I need to go get an MRI. But um, when I went home, of course, I did a deep dive um, of research. And basically, what I would have to get is a myomectomy, which is a removal of parts of the uterus, which contain this benign tumor. And the healing from that is about six weeks. Um, so definitely two or three of those weeks where I wouldn't be able to basically leave my apartment, I wouldn't be able to work. And like I mentioned before, I'm in this very transitory phase of my life where I can't really afford to not be working for three months. Um, so basically, I'm going to wait and see what the MRI says when I go and get that done. And then I'm definitely going to get two or three more opinions. But the first day after I was diagnosed, it was weird because I like it made me so anxious and I was like worried and I'm reading all these stories and watching all these YouTube videos of uterine fibroids and I could almost feel this pain in the lower portion of my body just like not go away and I'm like oh I can feel the fibroid and then you know as soon as I like forget that I have it I like, can't feel the pain anymore but anyways I'll keep you guys posted as to that um but I have watched so many so many so many different um testimonies about women who struggle with fibroids and have gotten them removed and some of them have come back so I think I'm definitely just gonna wait and see I'm not gonna let the anxiety of of what might be to come get the best of me and definitely get this MRI definitely get a second and third opinion and while I'm doing that I'm just trying to live a healthy of a life as possible I'm like trying to get as many anti-inflammatories in my body as possible I'm doing like the turmeric black pepper tea green teas like no like pastas like as little inflammation in my body as possible the better anywho anyhow that's the personal bit um but yeah I want to get into this um 
Andrew Huberman um, episode. If you guys haven't listened to any Andrew Huberman before, he is absolutely amazing. Um, he is a neuroscientist uh, at neuroscientist and professor at Stanford, and he talks about performance, health, everything and anything in between. And he had previously done a lot of episodes um, having to do with hormonal health and. He finally had um, a doctor on who um, talked a little bit about the female hormone health um, because, as many of you are familiar, it's quite different um, from that of, of biological men. I'd like to make sure that we circle back to birth control, in particular, oral contraceptive birth control. And we should touch on IUDs perhaps a little bit more. But what are your thoughts on sort of pure estrogen birth control. This is what I learned when I was in college is that birth control is basically tonic estrogen. So constantly taking estrogen, estrogen, women are taking estrogen so that they don't get the estrogen priming of progesterone. You're not getting any ovulation. And I've known women that have been taking oral contraception, that took oral contraception as like estrogen pills basically for five, 10, 15 years. Are there long-term consequences of this as it relates to pregnancy, PCOS, menopause? What, if so, what are some of those consequences? Um, what are your concerns? What do you like about oral contraceptives? What do you dislike about them? I like how balanced you ask that question. So women who take oral contraceptives, as long as you're describing like 10 years or longer, we call those Olympic oral contraceptive users. In terms of benefit, I think that, especially when they first came out and even now, it gives women reproductive choice and that's essential. As you may know, our reproductive choice has been declining recently. So I'm a big fan in that regard and we've got a lot of data to show both the risks and also the benefits of it. So I'll speak first into the benefits because uh, I'm gonna get on a soapbox a little bit about the risks. So we know that it reduces the risk of ovarian cancer. So there's something about this idea of incessant ovulation that is not good for the female body. So if you look at, for instance, women who are nuns, who uh, don't take oral contraceptives and they had a period every single month of their reproductive lives, they have a greater risk of ovarian cancer. So if you look then at women who have uh, several babies and they've got a period of time when they're pregnant that they're not ovulating and then they breastfeed for some period of time, they have a lower risk of ovarian cancer. So oral contraceptives help with reducing ovulation and reducing risk. We know that if you take the oral contraceptive for about five years, it reduces your risk of ovarian cancer by 50%. And that's significant because we're so poor at diagnosing ovarian cancer early. There's really no method that's really effective. We use CA125 and ultrasound screening, especially in women who are at greater genetic risk. But even that, often we diagnose it, you know, in a later stage. Maybe just because that statement is going to highlight for a number of people um, the question of what are some of the sim earliest symptoms that people can recognize without a blood test. So is ovarian cancer, is it going to be pain? So the problem is the symptoms are so vague and they're so nonspecific. One of the most common symptoms is bloating. 
And we've already talked about constipation. We've talked about how women have this longer track, GI track. And so bloating is a really common experience for most women. You can have bulk symptoms, you know, feeling like your, your lower belly is kind of pressed out. So the way that we inform women in terms of watching for this is to get regular gynecologic exams um, for women who are at high risk where they have, for instance, an ultrasound for some reason and it shows a mass that we're concerned about. There's a way to triage that in terms of what kind of evaluation that they need. And that's a situation where you might get a blood test called the CA-129, CA-125. The, um, yeah, the problem is the symptoms are so vague. It could be, it depends on how big the tumor is, how much bulk you have, what it's pressing on. So if, if um, taking estrogen and thereby re reducing the frequency of ovulation lowers the risk of ovarian cancer, should women that are, even women who are not sexually active, so they're, they're not actively trying to get pregnant or avoid getting pregnant, but if they're not sexually active, then the probability of conceiving, unless they go through some IUI or some other route is, is very low, as far as I know. Um, that's what I was taught in high school anyway. Um, <laughs> Would they be wise to suppress ovulation for periodically using hormone-based contraception just so that they can offset the risk of ovarian cancer? That's a very rational question, and I would say that's what mainstream medicine has had at its back to recommend oral contraceptives, not just for women who are seeking contraception, but for acne, for painful periods, for really kind of the drop of the hat they're prescribing oral contraceptives. That's what I was taught to do. But there are so many consequences. And I think the issue here is more about consent. Because in OBGYN, and I started out as board certified OBGYN, and I now mostly see men, but I was taught as an OBGYN to convince women to go on the oral contraceptive. And I think a lot of that was pharmaceutical influence. So maybe we could talk about the risks and why the answer is no. Good question. Um, as we do that, could I just ask, is the, um, the so-called ring, the new, it used to be called the Nuva ring, maybe that's a brand name, but it, when I was in college, there was all this discussion about the ring, right? By both men and women for reasons that don't, <laughs> don't belong on the podcast. Um, use your imagination, folks. So. Um, is the ring, obviously, it's not oral, it's not oral hormone contraception, but it's hormone-based, right? The ring is. is releasing estrogen locally as opposed to taking it orally. But would you, would you slot it under what you're about to tell us in terms of the concerns? So we have less data about the ring. So the oral contraceptive is two hormones. It's ethanol estradiol, and it's a progestin. So it's not the normal... Uh, progesterone that your body makes, that your ovaries make and your adrenals make. It is a synthetic form of progesterone. And it is the same progestin, similar, the same class that was shown to be dangerous and provocative in the Women's Health Initiative. So I am not a fan of progestins. I do not recommend them for any woman unless the consequence of not taking them is surgery or some other, um, you know, unless it, it gives them some freedom in some way. So I don't like progestins. The 
NuvaRing is estrogen plus progestin, but it's released transdermally through the vagina. So given the, the way that um, it's delivered to the vagina, the doses are lower than what's taken orally. But in terms of some of the risks that I'm about to talk about, we don't know about much of the data. We think that it's similar. There's probably a spectrum of risk, and the NuvaRing is a little more towards the middle than, you know, what I'm talking about with oral contraceptives. Okay. Are you ready for that? Yeah, I'm ready for the risks. Okay. So, like with almost any pharmaceutical, the oral contraceptive depletes certain micronutrients. So magnesium, there's certain vitamin Bs that are depleted. Uh, it also affects the microbiome. That data is not as strong, but there seems to be some effect. And there's also an increased risk of inflammatory bowel disease and autoimmune condition. It increases inflammatory tone. So the studies that I've seen increase one of the markers of inflammatory tone, high sensitivity CRP, by about 2 to 3x. It seems to make the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis more rigid so that you can't kind of roll with the punches and wax and wane in terms of cortisol prediction the way that you can off the birth control pill. It can affect thyroid function. I'm thinking of this slide that I have that has like 10 problems associated with oral contraceptive, but that's what I can remember right now. That's very helpful. And it makes me wonder whether or not if on the one hand, oral contraceptives are protective in women, it's ovarian cancer, but then they have these other issues. Yeah, there's one other I want to mention. Please. Anytime you take oral estrogen, it raises sex hormone binding globulin. And you've talked to other podcast guests about these, Kyle, I think. Sex hormone binding globulin, I think of as a sponge that soaks up free estrogen and free testosterone. So when you go on the breathe control pill, you raise your sex hormone binding globulin. It soaks up especially free testosterone. And for some women, it's not a big deal. They don't notice much of a difference. But then there's a phenotype, maybe related to CAG repeats on the androgen receptor, who are exquisitely sensitive to that decline in free testosterone. So this then opens the portal of talking a little bit about testosterone in women. So we've mentioned already that it's the most abundant Biologically, the most abundant hormone in the female system. Even though men make almost 10 times as much or even more than 10 times, it is so important for women. It is essential to so many things, not just sex drive and muscle mass and seeing a response to resistance training, but also confidence and agency. And so those women who are so sensitive to their testosterone level, they've got this high sex hormone binding globulin, their testosterone declines, what they describe is vaginal dryness, maybe a decline in sex drive, but there's also this bigger issue related to confidence and agency, even risk-taking from studies that we've done with MBA students. And I think this is a serious problem. Maybe the most important out of all of these things is that it can shrink the clitoris by up to 20%. 20%. And that includes the uh, regression of the, of the nerves that innervate the, the clitoris? Is that... I mean, that's a very good question as a neuroscientist. Yeah, I would think uh, I used to teach uh, the neural side of, of reproductive health. We need to do a series on sexual health. Maybe you would co-host that with me. Sure. So I, we could certainly use your expertise. I think, um, yeah, that's a dramatic, that's a dramatic, dramatic number. 
Yeah, but then let's go deep to the secret marketing. Mm-hmm. If I've got a woman that I think should not be on the birth control pill, maybe she's taking it for acne or she's taking it because her periods were a little painful. What I'm going to do is say, let's leverage these other ways of making your period less painful. Let's take the message of your painful periods and figure out, okay, is it your inflammatory tone? And we give you some fish oil SPMs, maybe a little aspirin when you've got your period. Like, let's find some other ways to deal with it than to take the oral contraceptive, which you have not received informed consent about, because it can shrink your clit 8 to 20%. Now, that usually convinces most people to that reversal. The elevation in sex hormone binding globulin does not seem to go away when you come off the birth control pill. To me, that is the biggest problem with prescribing oral contraceptives. Now, the data that we have is limited. There's one woman who, uh, Claudia something something, who looked at sex hormone binding globulin a year out from stopping the birth control pill, and it was still elevated. It wasn't as high as it was when they were on the pill, but it was still elevated. So your question about reversibility, I don't know if we know the answer to that. Wow, okay. Um... That's, yeah, that's a significant statement and something that for consideration. Related to this, although this might seem not related, it is, how early do you recommend that women go get their follicle number assessed? In other words, to get a size, a sense of the size of the ovarian reserve and their AMH levels uh, measured. Um, I'm, an, I'm an amateur outsider as I say this, but we have an episode on fertility I just described the ovulatory menstrual cycle. Yeah. Um, and I'm not the best person to answer that. Yeah. Well, we can. I'm too far out from it. Okay. Well, um, I suppose then from taking the perspective of somebody who thinks about fertility in terms of at least congruent with vitality and longevity, yeah. would, given that it's fairly non invasive, it's an ultrasound or a blood draw for AMH or both, is there any reason why a woman would not? want to get her follicle number assessed or her AMH levels assessed. Is there any reason why? Because I was shocked to learn that most women don't do this yeah. until they're hitting their late 30s or early 40s and they either haven't conceived or they suddenly decide that they want to conceive. And I thought, why doesn't every doctor insist that their female patients get, have their AMH level addressed so that if they need to it's freeze cost. eggs, it's they cost. Can. It's cost. Yeah, so I think if you've got a disposable income to do it, go for it. It's not including a standard blood panel? No. Wow. The only women in my practice who've had Amy just done and have looked at their follicle count are women who want to freeze their eggs, or, and that requires disposable income, or they um, are having trouble getting pregnant, so they are in the reproductive endocrinology system, and they're getting an evaluation. And then there are also um, the women who have symptoms of early menopause. So premature ovarian insufficiency, which is before age 40. Uh, these are the women that I see getting attested. And I think you're right that it should be offered more brightly. It speaks to the democratization of data again. And I think most women don't know that. So you're doing a huge service, I think, to be speaking into this. One other point related to that is that what I see in conventional medicine is that when a woman asks for a hormone panel and she's not trying to get pregnant, she usually gets told that 
hormones vary too much. It's a waste of money. You don't need it. Or if you're feeling hormonal, why don't you go on a birth control pill? Unless she's trying to get pregnant. If she's trying to get pregnant, suddenly those same tests are very reliable. And they get, you know, their, their testosterone, their free testosterone, their thyroid pill, they get their estrogen and progesterone, maybe they get their cortisol, they get their AMH. So there's a double standard between those who want to get pregnant and those who don't, and that needs to end. Yeah, I totally agree. Honestly, I don't think there's a whole lot of commentary I can give. I think Dr. Gottfried covered it better than I ever could. But one of the biggest things that really stuck out to me when I was listening to it is that the same thing that I felt when I was going through my journey with birth control and felt like I had not been given the full picture or all the information before I was put on this pill. um, She really talks about this notion of consent. And I feel like That is truly what is lacking a lot of the times when we go into doctor's offices and we're just not allowed to actually make choices for ourselves based on information that is available. And something that is absolutely astonishing is the fact that um, taking hormonal birth control, oral contraceptives for an extended period of time can actually shrink your clitoris by 20%. I have never heard that before. Um, I think that is, I don't know if any single doctor has said that to a patient before. And I think what she emphasizes there is the fact that a lot of the pushing onto, especially younger women of these contraceptives is, um, linked to the pharmaceutical industry, which is something that I have always had in the back of my mind, But anyways, I hope you guys found that as insightful and astonishing as I did. I will be back next week with um, a guest that I'm super, super excited um, for you guys to listen to. She is a period coach. I don't want to give too much away, but yeah, I'll see you guys next week.